I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today played one of J.K. Rowling's most loved characters in the Harry Potter films, Luna Lovegood. Luna was the alternative kid in the class, the dreamy, awkward, adorable, dirty, straggle-haired blonde pupil at Hogwarts. It was always going to be hard to find the right person to play her, but the story of how our guest was chosen is remarkable. Ivana Lynch always identified with Luna rather than Hermione or Harry or Ron when she grew up reading the books, but she never thought that one day she'd become pen pals with the author or end up acting her heroine. Now she's written a book, The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting, The Tragedy and Glory of Growing Up. Vana, welcome to Past Imperfect. Thank you. Thanks for that lovely intro. <laughs> Can you remember the first time you ever picked up Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone? Uh, yeah, I do, absolutely. Although, um, so this was back, oh, I was like, I was eight years old. Um, and we were, my family were back then, we're just avid li- library goers. So um, my aunt had told my mum about this amazing new book series called Harry Potter um, but they didn't have the first one in stock because it was so popular so she got Chamber of Secrets so my f- my introduction to the world of Harry Potter was the second one um, and I didn't want to read it because I just thought I was very girly at the time and I was like I don't want to read about a boy you know <laughs> I don't want to read about this weird little teenage boy or whatever you know 12 year old And uh, but then she started reading it to my brother and I happened to be in the room and I just fell in love and I thought it was incredible I was immediately hooked and immediately very intrigued and um they went to bed, so then I took the book and they never got it back. <laughs> <laughs> Did you immediately feel at home in that kind of magical world? Um, I don't know if it was the magic aspect or more just the the feeling of being an outsider or being strange, you know, because it always starts with the Dursleys where they were very normal and straight-laced and Harry just didn't know who he was and didn't fit in. And, um, I, yeah, I immediately connected with that. And I suppose, like, an alternative world... I, I was definitely somebody who dreamed of just a, a, a more unusual life than what I had going. And uh, and Harry had that. And he encountered so many odd people. And I just felt connection to a lot of those characters. Yeah. And you grew up in a rural village in County Louth on the east coast of Ireland. And your mother and father were both teachers. Can mm. you describe what your home was like? Yeah, um deep deep in the countryside no public transport there still isn't i think there might be one bus but um yeah countryside fields everywhere sheep cows that kind of 
setting and um yeah we had we we i grew up with three siblings and um there was nothing to do except you know your imagination really so we had we had a big garden and um whichever siblings we i could convince to play with me to do plays or play games uh we would just go out in the garden and and play imaginary games and um yeah out of necessity you know i think that i think imagination was encouraged definitely by my parents big readers the house was just full of books but yeah it was also because there was not much else to do there Mm. (laughs) there was no other kids in some ways it sounds idyllic but as a child did it feel boring oh yeah boring boring I I couldn't understand the hype about Ireland the fascination whenever you know foreign people would come to visit Americans especially like how amazing how beautiful Ireland is how rich the history I was like but there's nothing to do it's just trees (laughs) so um I appreciate it now but yeah as a child I wanted stimulation and uh, just I wanted to be in the city really Mm. yeah and you were the third daughter was it difficult standing out did you feel um yeah definitely it was there's definitely a sense of the the older two and they were very studious and high achievers there was a sense that they had done everything and everything after that was not remarkable and like it of course everything we my our parents were so loving they praised and encouraged us but it was they'd all achieved all the straight A's so there was yeah there was definitely a sense of um who who am I and how do I define myself in this world and um yeah it's something I've thought about a lot and I suppose I've written a lot about um in my book because I think the root of my issues was more of an existential struggle of who am I and, and where do I fit in and a lot of that was fed by yes being the third child third daughter and feeling a bit like oh I'm the extra one <laughs> you know they wanted a boy by this stage by the third girl they definitely wanted a boy and um and they had a boy after you they had a boy after me yeah but I was originally called Patricia for a few days because they wanted a Patrick and they were like oh we're not getting one of those so um but they didn't like the name they changed it which is oh, fascinating yeah. and when you were 11 you then became anorexic can you remember the first time you you realised was there was a problem. You you said in your book that it's not something that can be calculated or conjured mm. when you feel like it. It just happens to mm-hmm. some people. Why do you think that is? Um, I don't know. I think that's the very difficult question to answer. Why do some people find food as a means of self-soothing and control? You know, and there's obviously many different forms of eating disorders. But I think we all find different things to cling to I think say for example my eldest sister her her sort of method of um uh yeah self-soothing was having to achieve having to be the best at everything um and that was maybe a more healthy thing but it it didn't get us out of control whereas food can it can be very abusive and I I don't really know I think there were a, a few sort of things earlier in childhood where um I often had I had a lot of allergies as a child so I start to see that I had a problem with food or food was a means of getting attention from parents or getting noticed so um sometimes I think it might have been things like that and I also was already I was quite small naturally and I people often commented on that so I think it was just small things like that seeing people notice this about me I can control this I can feel seen from this um but yeah you know other people will find other things for me I found food I suppose 
And did you find yourself exercising too much and, and trying to avoid all foods really from that early in age? Because it's quite young to get anorexia, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. Of course. That's that's all part of it. And uh, yeah, it sneaks up on you. You don't... You, you don't see it as a problem I, for such a long time. Even after I'd been through clinics and hospitals, I just thought everyone was overreacting. Um, but but uh, And it's strange as well because I think eating healthily, exercising is very much praised by society and people don't often talk about, especially among young people. You know, at school, they're always talking about the, the importance of exercise and not about the importance of rest and balance and moderation so for a long time people were like wow look how fit and interested in 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 health you are and they didn't realize it it was a as, you know quite a dark obsession um but yeah it did it did it, it it grows you know it escalates and you don't realize it's out of control for a long long time because in a very strange way it's making you feel a lot better about yourself Mm. And you talked about it being a sort of form of control. Did you feel Uh quite powerless as a child, do you think? Um, Yes, I think I just felt a bit useless. I I just, like I said, I really felt like, uh, why, what's the point of me? I don't have any purpose, you know? I don't have an economic purpose. (laughs) Like back in the day when people had kids who had... Uh, just you know the, to work or I, I'm not doing anything special um so I I just yeah it was and as a child you know you you're figuring out who you are you, it's like you're always meeting people who are better at the everything than you or more attractive all these things and um I just I just had this growing sense of anxiety of what am I going to do to like survive to get a job to be an adult to be an acceptable adult especially an an acceptable woman and um and then i think the the eating feeling like i could control that or, or i could be quote unquote good at that that made me feel a, a sense of relief and mm-hmm. like i had i had a daily purpose yeah and how did your parents feel but did they become very anxious very quickly or did anyone notice um, my mum was the first to notice, yeah. And my mother actually had anorexia, um, so I suppose she was more sensitive to it. Um, so, yeah, she, she she quickly, and as well, as is with many mothers, <laughs> food was a, a love language for her, you know, mm. and uh, that was, she would make things, and she, she loved to see people eating them. That makes her feel uh, loved, I suppose. Um and uh, yeah, it, it would really hurt her that I was pushing all this away. It was literally pushing away, you know, a mother's love. Um, so yes, she she noticed it quite quickly, and and because I was, you know, eleven, I was already pretty small. The the problem became evident quite quickly when I started losing weight. Um, but I don't think and she was the one who was most worried. She was the one mm. who was really anxious to get help and I think it took my dad a bit longer to realize it, it, that I needed help yeah and for you what were the emotions is there a sense of almost triumph or exhilaration when you weigh yourself or is there a sense of anxiety about the world around you what what can you remember feeling at that time um uh very cold <laughs> physically there are a lot of symptoms you know I was just always cold 
I just remember being completely obsessed. I could never stop. I just thought, I just thought I'd never, I mean, I was, in a weird way, I was happy. I was like, cool, I got this and I know how to do this. And if everyone just leaves me alone, I'll be fine. Um, but like, I could never stop thinking about numbers, thinking about, um, you know, oh, the birthday party next week and how am I going to avoid that? Um, and I just, it was, it was, it all, as I say, it all happened within a few months. And I remember just really feeling like, oh, okay, this is my life now. You know, we all have to eat several times a day and I have a problem with this. So I think my life is just going to be numbers now. Mm. And, um, but I also really remember feeling mm, that, yeah, you did say that word, like a sense of power sometimes, like, I know what I'm doing. I've got it. And yes, absolutely like a rush. It's like that, just that endorphin rush, like when you get a test back and it's an A or when you get a job or an audition went well. I just had that sense of, yes, I'm doing something right. Mm. And great, I want more of this feeling. Yeah. And you spent two years in and out of clinics. What was that like? Because you were very young. Did, uh-huh. did you feel then that you were being helped or did you feel you didn't need any help? Or were, you, were you surprised you were there? Yeah, I thought I didn't need help. I thought I was, yeah, I thought I was fine. <laughs> and uh, I really thought, I thought, you know, I'd meet other young people and I thought, well, their problem's way worse than me. I don't know what I'm doing here or I haven't got this bad. There is this weird sense in some of those clinics. There's a competitiveness and it's mm-hmm. a very competitive sort of illness, I suppose. Um, so... Yeah, I would see other young people who had struggled with it for years and feel like I don't I don't need to be here. But but that's always the feeling. Like you you'll you'll never sort of satiate that side of your brain. Um you'll you'll feel in control, but you'll keep kind of like every few months you kind of you set yourself these goals and once I get to that I'll be happy, I'll be fine. But it it's never enough mm. and um yeah, but I I don't know those clinics. Oh, I, I, they were dark places. Like obviously the the you you do need help, you need intervention. I did, um, but um, and having a eating disorder is traumatizing. But a lot of those places are even more traumatizing. I, I find, and it can be very hard to when you're just like in a system where you're just treated as a sick person, and. Uh, not in a very human way like you're not they're not they're they're sort of tackling the eating problem rather than the root issue um it it just can be hard to then pull yourself out of that and see yourself as anything other than your eating disorder which i think is like the key to recovery it's rebuilding yourself away from that um and i did see i saw like a lot of young people get trapped in it of going through clinics and then relapsing and going back and and they were missing huge chunks of their adolescence of school and growing up and socializing and um and that made them feel even more weird and made them need their eating disorder even more so yes tricky it's Mm. like recovery is very very complicated and I do uh, often feel grateful that I got through it so young so I actually didn't miss um so all my sort of physical recovery was done before I got to secondary school and nobody knew about it then. That that whole thing of having like a fresh start where you can introduce yourself as a new person and mm. people don't know the history, that was that was probably, I think, very helpful to, to me. 
And Luna doesn't come into the Harry Potter books until the fifth, The Order of the Phoenix. Did you immediately identify with this girl with this sort of straggly hair who was sort of funny and odd and rather enchanting? Uh, yes, I did. I did. I, well, mm, I I actually felt she she brought up a weird mixture of feelings where I was absolutely fascinated and captivated by her, um, but also challenged because that was when I was in the midst of my eating disorder and um, it's a very dark place. Your mind is just, well, it's, you're self-obsessed. You're so obsessed with it. That's all you can think about. You can't care about anyone else. All you care about is your routine and keeping that under control and she was somebody she was just completely the opposite of that where she was so secure in herself that she was in love with the world around her she was so fascinated by other people about their you know just the details or their what made them different and I just love that outlook that generosity of spirit to really look and take in other people so actually she made me feel quite guilty and made me feel sad about who I was, the choices I'd made, the the kind of person I'd let myself become, which, um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was important. That was profound for recovery to kind of, to see someone else who made me realise I actually wanted to live life differently. So fascinating. And you wrote to J.K. Rowling, actually, mm-hmm. to tell her how much you admired the Harry Potter books. What did you say and why did you do that? Um, yeah, my first letter was a, a thank you to her, really. Um, to, to uh, you know, I didn't expect she'd write back, but I just felt so grateful to have one thing in my life that helped me take my mind off what was going on. Like, it really was such a relief to have even just half an hour in the day where I wasn't thinking of those things. And Harry Potter was the only thing that had the power to do that, to, to take over my mind. And um, yeah, it was like, it made me want to really live. Like I really wanted to read these books and be immersed in this world. And it there was nothing. What was lovely about those at that time was it was just the books. So you didn't see uh, other young women like even watching TV was very triggering for me because I would see all these beautiful, thin people who seemed like they were fine. And whereas the magical, the books were all about these very odd people. And they weren't necessarily beautiful or perfect or had their lives together. They they really didn't. <laughs> and they, mm. um, yeah, I just loved that. So it was such a reprieve. And so that's why I wrote to her to just say, you've no idea how profound an impact these books have had on me and I'm so grateful and yeah thank you and were you stunned when an envelope marked with the stamp by our post <laughs> arrived through your letterbox yeah of course I didn't um well actually originally because I'd written to her also when I was younger as a little girl more just like before the Eden sort of just like oh, I love Harry Potter you know that kind of thing <laughs> and then I got um like a standard form letter back where it was just typed out and thank you very much for your interest here are some answers to commonly asked questions so when I got the second one I kind of thought it was that again but it was handwritten and so and suddenly you know it kind of slowly dawned on me that it was like oh wow she has personally taken in my story and is personally replying um yeah it was was very I was I was completely in shock yeah and did you talk to her about your eating disorder hadn't mm. you did yeah. she address that in her reply yeah of course what of did course. she say um she just really empathized and 
said she had known people who'd who'd gone through it and um well she really um praised and encouraged my creativity because I had drawn little pictures on it I think I might have sent her a little doll I'd made and she kind of she was saying like um and I told her I really wanted to act that that was something I loved and she was I think she said like the way you feel about acting and creativity is how I feel about writing and just this she was really you know uh empathizing with an 11 year old Mm -hmm. really saying that what 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 you have in you I had that in me too and and this was this this has helped me and um yeah just very very kind um when did you confide that you wanted to play Luna Lovegood to her did you say very early on yeah yeah um yeah I did and I but I felt kind of a little bit guilty about it as in like she probably doesn't want Luna being played by a sick person um uh but I but I yeah I told her just how much I loved her and I felt like I knew her better than every anyone any other reader and um yeah she was very encouraging again with that she she did emphasize I have no control over casting which is true um I think she makes suggestions for for you know some of the older actors but um yeah she gave me the address of the casting people and said you know have a go we'll write to them see what happens so she was very encouraging but it wasn't her domain and then that you did send your tape of yourself to the casting director, didn't you? But they didn't reply. But you then mm. saw an audition um, advertised. What mm. happened? Uh, yes. Um, so I, I used to go on the Harry Potter fan sites every day uh, after school. And um, yeah, I saw an open call. This when I was 14 for Luna Lovegood. And because I'd known they were casting her around this time. But I I thought they would have cast her by then because filming such a nerd I knew everything I knew filming was about to start so I was like that's probably probably gone but um yeah just uh and I found out later that apparently you know they had been auditioning other young actors in drama schools and they had their final five actresses and then they kind of said let's just see what's out there I was just I mean everything was on my side look really it was it was just yeah, just very, very lucky that somebody said, "Why don't we just do an open call and see what mm. happens?" And um, yeah, I, it was it was in London. It was in January two thousand six, and yeah, I convinced my dad to take me along, and that's it. <laughs> and what did you have to do at the casting? So you had to go in and first of all just say your name, where you came from, and they would eliminate. Well, queued up for four hours. Forgot that part. Um, they would eliminate a lot of people based on just I suppose how they looked and their height and that kind of thing um so yeah a lot of people went at that stage and that's again where I was like I'm very lucky yeah this is this is not talent this is just superficial things um and then sort of the second round then we went into a room a smaller group of people and we were given a scene it was the scene in the forbidden forest where Harry and Luna are talking about the Thestrals. For any Harry Potter nerds, you know exactly where that is in the books. Um, and yeah, they said, just, you know, look over it, familiarise yourself with the scene. So actors call a cold read. Of course, I didn't know that. It was, just, But it was just, yeah, familiarise yourself with the scene. And then you'll go. And then, yeah, so then after about half an hour, I went in and read it with the casting directors. 
And then they kept asking me to read it again. And then they started asking more people to come into the room, like, you know, higher up, I suppose, um, casting directors. And yeah, that's when I knew, oh, right, this is getting interesting. Yeah. Amazing. And then well, how did J.K. Rowling react when you got the part? Was she thrilled? Um, yeah, she. So I didn't tell her because I, again, I was just really afraid that I was afraid she was going to be disappointed that because she knew really all my darkness she knew that I'd been in and out of treatment centers and um you know recovery is not a linear road so I was just really worried that she would she would want somebody who was more just mentally balanced but anyway he sent her like a list of the new actors new cast and she saw that and um I mean she couldn't have been nicer You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest Ivana Lynch. There'll be more from us after this. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest, the actor and writer, Ivana Lynch. What was your first day on set like? Oh, overwhelming. Um, they, uh, they had scheduled it so that I didn't have like any sort of um, one-to-one scenes. It was it, I was just sort of background. Um, so it was the rooming requirement scene. So there was lots of cast, and it kind of just felt like, you know, a new school or a new drama group. It was they I, and this was the other cast for the rest of the cast. It was just their their fifth film. So it was their fifth film. So so they they had this sense of oh how are you how did your exams go and how was your summer and um they they were so comfortable whereas I was like very conscious of the cameras and I I hadn't acted professionally at all so I had to be told you you never look at the camera (laughs) (laughs) just you have to completely forget it's there and um and I kept kind of going up to David Yates going is that done was that all right you know really (laughs) really really freaking out about the fact that 
that's going to be on the screen and that's going to be there forever and people are going to watch these films over and over um so yeah i had to be trained to stop thinking that way and just you sort of live in the moment and luna stands sort of for difference doesn't she she was she was the odd one out in the class and do you think that helps lots of children at school did you feel oh, that you were i know it helps for all those children that does help you know young people who feel out of place i mean i had it the other day it was at a book festival and uh young I'm sure she was probably 13 14 came up to me telling me you know having somebody who was different and and they they cry they get so upset because it's such a huge deal when you when you feel constantly out of place to find a character who is that and who wears it very naturally very happily um so I I know that impact and and yeah I see it all over the place and such a privilege to to that part of you know the I suppose fame or or the connection to Harry Potter that that's part of that's my favorite part Mm. and did it help you playing her in a way did it help you keep on top of your eating disorder or was it quite tough and traumatizing because you were in a very different context um no it really helped it was it was positive I think uh like the environment on set it wasn't what people think of film and acting world it it was very much a child friendly and um, education focused um, environment it wasn't Hollywood we weren't talking about our images I think we probably were behind the scenes and we would go home and obsess about that stuff but it wasn't the thing we would talk about in in those corridors and um, uh, it just helped me to, to feel like I was contributing to something I absolutely loved Mm. and I could see all these people I don't just mean the cast I mean the crew I could see all these very creative very brilliant and very nerdy people working every day on on something they loved and uh, to feel like I was an important part of that it, it gave me a purpose it gave me a sense of value outside of the value I'd given myself from you know, having an eating disorder, adhering to those weird rules I'd put in my head. Um, so, yeah, it was a huge help to mm. stay on track. Um, and there was this dark side with you playing, you know, with these sort of these trolls mm-hmm. on the Internet. What did that feel like? Because you'd got your dream job, you know, your names are on the credits. Um, you know, you, the Harry Potter fan sites really helped you through your illness. And then suddenly they're all yeah. commenting on you and discussing you and picking you apart was that really traumatizing i don't know if traumatizing is the word but in a way having had an eating disorder and having had a very nasty inner voice it kind of protected me from any any criticism from media and they wouldn't they wouldn't criticize because we were children they wouldn't have done that openly they might have done it snidely but actually it was more just fans on forums on the internet who were who were mean um but like i say i'd been really (laughs) weirdly well equipped to deal with that because I I knew I knew how mean I could get in my own head it was not nice it was very um uh discombobulating because I saw you know sort of the bad dark side of fan culture um where it is a lot of people on the internet talking about strangers and not dealing with their own problems and that's where I suppose the nastiness comes out so yes what had previously been quite a safe welcoming place they're like yeah we accept everyone we love everyone and oh you're you know be yourself and then when I was the one when I was the celebrity on the other side you know they didn't have that compassion for celebrities just it's there was a very sudden switch um so yeah yeah it, it, it was 
it was strange, but it, I think it was good to have that. And and I, I really got perspective on feeling like, right, you can sit home and, and you can pick on everyone and yourself and, and obsess over just imperfections, or you can be out in the world creating stuff and getting on with it and actually just producing stuff, putting things out in the world. And, and I think ultimately, you know, I really realized I want to be on that side of it. I want to stay on this side of it and uh, contribute. Yeah. What's fascinating, though, is you actually logged on anonymously, didn't you? And almost yeah. pretended to be a troll, yeah. writing really mean things about yourself. Like, <laughs> um, did she have to skin a hundred Barbies for that <laughs> fake blonde wig? And you did it very cleverly, much cleverly than the actual trolls. But yeah. why did you do that? Uh, it's that it, it's an addiction, meanness, nastiness and um, negativity. Like I, I often see look back on anorexia and an eating disorder as being it was just an addiction to negativity I, I and but more profoundly I suppose an addiction to safety because if if you know the worst thing somebody says about you if you can understand it and get sort of behind it uh, they can't hurt you with it so I found these forums of people bashing me and I thought, hang on, I'm I'm the champion at, at, <laughs> at self-flagellation. I know how to bully me, how it really hurts. And um, yeah, it was addictive because again, it gave me that sense of control, gave me that sense of if I can be the meanest person to myself, then I'm invincible and you won't hurt me. And so yeah, I got really just locked into... Um, and it also, I suppose, humanized it weirdly. It made me feel like, um, oh, all these other people saying these things that seem terrible and that seem like a real, well, they're like ringers of truth of, of the things people are not saying. Um, oh, no, it's just a teenager on the Internet who hasn't got anything figured out. Um, yeah, it humanized it, it made it less scary. But yeah, you know, the thing I found out, which I talk about in the book, was that you just never get to the end of that negativity. You think you will. You Mm -hmm. think you'll just, you'll have a handle of it and you can control it. But it just goes deeper and deeper. It's a deep, deep, dark pit that you'll never get out of. And it really erodes your self-esteem, your sense of self-worth. Those words that I was reading and that I was writing really started to affect me, mm-hmm. and uh, and I noticed that my my mind started to echo them. Like I would go to work and I would hit, sort of have the echoes of what people were saying about me and what people were saying about my co-stars, who I really loved and admired. And I just thought, like, I can't. I don't. I don't want to be. I don't want my mind to be this way. Mm-hmm. And they are. Those people are having an effect. Yeah. And you wrote an eating disorder is your worst bully it's the mm. meanest person who's living inside your own head and the fact that it wasn't a shock if you were criticized and as you say you're braced for it you're expecting it how did you get out of that negativity then do you still feel that in your head or do you think you've managed to become more optimistic i have since? managed to become more optimistic and i think it is a choice i think yeah as um sort of as i touched on there like I really saw if you want to be a creative person, you have to be an optimist because nobody's asking for your creativity. It's nothing, you know, when you have an idea for a book or um, a picture or something, nobody's saying, yeah, the world needs this. Like nobody said to J.K. Rowling, for example, the world needs Harry Potter. It's going to change lives. She had to have that optimism. And there's everything to talk you out of it. Like, 
this is not this is silly this is fantasy this is uh this is not going to work and be sensible be real be realistic get a real job that kind of thing um so i think you have to be a crazy idealist and optimist you have to have total conviction in these whimsical ideas that you have that you don't know where they come from and I just saw you know I do I want to continue acting I want my life to be about being a creative and uh unless I really really choose to protect that and to keep choosing the the positive outlook uh because I you know I do believe which I didn't I thought the negativity was the truth I thought the, the very mean things, the things that people weren't saying aloud, that that was the secret truth. And and I don't believe that now. I kind of feel like that's one truth, but, but also kindness can be the truth as well. And that's just a different perspective. So I'm really disciplined now about always choosing that. Of course, I do have that inclination towards I want to be safe want to protect myself and that's when I start looking for negativity and yeah every now and then I notice that I notice myself lately have got a bit negative so bought myself a gratitude journal I was like right I gotta get back on this Mm -hmm. like every day I need to think about what I'm grateful for and yeah train your thoughts to be positive so only one in three anorexia sufferers actually get over it do you think you're lucky or do you feel as if it's your determination and the choices you've made that have helped you um i'm very lucky it's a combination of both but i am i i think i'm very lucky with my parents and uh the timing of everything of course i'm incredibly lucky to have had such a huge dream come true that sort of nudged me in the direction of recovery um yeah the thing I feel luckiest about is that I had parents who loved me no matter what and would not give up on me um you know they didn't do everything right there was a lot of things I was angry with them for which I talk about in the book and um took a long time to reconcile myself with how recovery happened um but yeah they like I always had that that unconditional love that cushion and um that really enables me to and when I started to I suppose um pursue those dreams more than I was pursuing my eating disorder I was supported I was loved I was encouraged um so that was really important um but yeah I do I do I know recovery is a choice and like there is still there was and there is the sick part of my mind and anyone who's gone through an eating disorder knows that will go yeah you failed at anorexia you failed at that there's all these people who are doing it and they are managing to have an eating disorder and keep going and 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 they they hide it and there's that part of my mind that will be like and when things don't work out like dreams you know if I get a bad review or um don't get a job that I wanted I will have that sense of I wish I'd kept that safe thing going. And you became a vegan as well and started a podcast called The Mm -hmm. Chick Peeps. Was that a way of controlling your food intake or is it a way of kind of putting food into a different category almost? No, veganism completely helped me have a more positive relationship to food. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm lucky that way. It was was brilliant. I think when I... Because I'd been vegetarian for a long time um, for ethical reasons... And then when I discovered veganism was a natural extension of that um, love for animals, for those ethics, 
I was I was very nervous about starting or reluctant because I thought, oh, no, this feels like it'll be a lot of restriction. But um, the vegan community really taught me that it can be a very abundant and nourishing lifestyle. And I was still at that time thinking of foods as reward and punishment. You can have a cake if you've done something good, which is a very eating disorder mindset. And and it was, yeah, it was like under control, but it's, I still had those labels. And switching to veganism, it took the focus away from food from being that good or bad and, um, and a, yeah, a, a source of fuel. It turned it into an expression of what I love, you know, animals, compassion, equality, justice. It, it, it made me, uh, yeah, it took the focus off the aesthetics of what well, I suppose, you know, or the superficial aspect of food and made it about um, my values and who I want to be. And now I feel I don't have issues with food. I, I don't use it to um, to punish myself anymore. And it is really thanks to veganism. What would you say to any child going through anorexia now? Oh, uh, God, that's a big question. Um, it's hard because a lot of these people don't admit that they have a problem. Um, and they won't even identify with that word or what it can be hard to, to say it out loud even. Um, but I would say, oh gosh, I suppose I'd say that, that if you keep going with the eating disorder, there's kind of only one way that goes. It, you'll just get smaller and make your world smaller in the process. Whereas if you are to, you know, take a risk or dare to pursue the other things that you love and you might you might think oh they're not big enough I don't I'm not an actor or whatever I don't have something big enough it might just be I don't know you like to bake or you like to fix things (laughs) random I don't know but I think if you start to pursue those little things like that has unlimited potential it has all this possibility there's a path that goes all over the place and you'll meet who knows who, or you'll, you have no idea what you'll do. So that that's the unlimited, exciting, fulfilling way. And I know the path of anorexia and an eating disorder does feel secure, but actually, ironically, it's not safe at all. You know, if you, if you keep going with it, it will destroy you. And along with Daniel Radcliffe, you criticised JK Rowling for the tweet she posted about trans issues and gender identity and sex and saying that women should be called women. Do you think she was too antagonistic to trans people? How did you feel? Because it must have been very difficult because you're so fond of her and she was a mentor to you. This is a subject I am terrified of speaking about, honestly, because um, I have huge admiration for her. I have huge admiration for trans friends. Um, I think they have a, the, the two sides of this debate. I think they have a lot more in common than than they have differences. Um, you know, I think there are people who have faced a lot of trauma based on their sex. And um, I am just so scared to comment on this because I do not want to hurt or dismiss anything J.K. Rowling has gone through. You know, I don't want to hurt her, but I don't I don't want to hurt people who are um, trans people who have struggled to find acceptance for who they are. And I think they're very brave. So, um uh, it's a subject I'm very emotional on and I won't really talk about it further because 
of my admiration for both people. Mm. All I'll say is that I've I've really learned a lot from the discussions happening. I really I stand by my statement. I really wish it didn't happen on Twitter and all that. Um, uh, and I I read everything that she tweets and I read all the responses. And I just um, yeah I I I. I I think they have a lot in common. I don't think it's a debate that should be dismissed. I'm not somebody who personally has suffered, you know, I'm very privileged, a lot, partly because of um, a lot to do with the J.K. Rowling's world, what she created. That's where a lot of my privilege comes from. Um, but I'm not, so I'm not somebody who's who has suffered from domestic abuse or anything that she's talking about. I'm also not somebody who has struggled with my, my gender identity. So I'm not going to be a spokesperson for either side. Um, I'm just going to keep listening and trying to be compassionate towards both sides. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I can't talk about it any further because it, it does upset me. No, sure. You also wrote in your book, I would have to admit that recovery felt much more like surrender than strength, that it felt like the warrior finally falling to her knees in bone-deep exhaustion. Do you still feel that or do you feel now that you've completely put that behind you? I have put it behind me, but I do. I feel like it, like, I guess what I, the point I was trying to make at that point in the book was, um, you know, they always talk about recovery in terms of you're an eating disorder warrior, you're strong, you're triumphant. And I appreciate if that language resonates with you, if that's helpful. But it, it just didn't feel like that for me. It felt like I was... I was resting, I was giving in, and it was felt like, I can't do this anymore. And that didn't always feel empowering. Mm. It felt pretty shitty, to be honest, excuse my language, but it, it, it didn't feel, did not feel like a warrior. And I guess I just wanted to be in that moment in the book, be there for people going through it, saying, you don't have to feel like Xena warrior princess, you know, body positive war you don't have to you can feel like a total failure and and you can feel like you're giving in and that's part of it and I think I mean I see that in creativity as well a lot of surrender is a huge uh, important part of being a creative person you can really try and control something control emotion as an actor control a character in your stories or as a plot point and there's a point where you just have to go i have no idea i can't control this i'm gonna go for a walk and see what comes in and stuff does when you surrender so i am a big fan of surrender (laughs) in life and in and in creativity and in some ways do you think you now see luna as the real you as the sort of the one that you really love most because it, she grabs life and doesn't care if she's quirky or different do you feel that that is who you are really now uh no <laughs> um no she's still very much like a guiding light to me um is she your I, alter ego do you think in some ways she no no she's my inspiration mm. she's i think she's somebody so pure so like that the fact that she just she just doesn't have ego she doesn't think about i don't even know if she has like self-worth because i don't think the self is important to her i think she's more she's just so interested in nature and other people like it's like the self is just not there really um in a in a great way so and i don't think i could ever be that way and and i that's just that's just who i am i, I do i do have a lot of darkness and all that and I'll try and use that and I'll try and manage it. But um, no, she's somebody I look to 
her outlook on life and her kindness and her um the very loving outlook she has i'll always aim to come back to that but i i don't think i'll ever be that i am a different person and looking back to yourself at the age of 11 when the eating disorder started what do you wish you'd known then that you know now or what would you say to yourself I would say that the concept of making it is complete bullshit. You know, I really, because I used to look at um, the Harry Potter actors before I was in the films as, wow, they're done. They're perfect. They're forevermore encased in success and beauty and uh, having having sorted it out. And 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 really just found that you know because you, you see snapshots of them you see them all polished and lovely and um that's so not true you'll never sort of get there and and, and if you want to live an artistic life you're always going to have to keep meeting new versions of yourself and and letting past versions die i i really do believe that you can never just say cool I, i'm done um and i guess as a young person i always was i wanted to make it i wanted to be done and tick myself off and say you are acceptable forever and you don't have to do anything else and like you don't have to do anything else there is i believe in an inherent worth um you don't have to tick boxes and fulfill people it's nice it's nice to be able to pay your mortgage and to have things to talk about with people but yeah the concept of of making it is bullshit and i wish i i wish i'd known that i wish somebody said that that joining Harry Potter and or even getting more acting jobs after that that will never fulfill you or make you feel complete and it's also not it's not your character it's not who you are it's not I don't I don't believe it's your soul's destiny to make it in um you know the the superficial the stuff in the world go and be successful and, and live a happy life but I don't think that's the purpose of life yeah Ivana thank you very much for joining <laughs> us on Past Imperfect thank you for having me listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the actor and writer Ivana Lynch. The producers were Anya Pierce and Lucy Ditchmont and the series producer is Ben Mitchell. Listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or download them for wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, or download the audiobook. It features insights from our interviews with guests including Tom Daly, Najee Hussein and Marcus Rashford. We'll be back with more Past Imperfect next week. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.